Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Today, we take a look at Black History Month, and we have some special guests to record Black History Month, and in particular, Tony Medina, who is an author and professor of creative writing at Howard University. Tony, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Llewellyn. Good to be here. You are a very prolific author and a poet. Uh, we have a lot of authors who come on the show, but very few poets. And you have written a great deal of poetry, and I'm glad to say you're going to read one of your poems to us later in the program. How did you get into being a poet? Tell us a little about yourself and how poetry came into your life. Well, you know, it's interesting because I grew up in the Bronx, in the Throsnick Housing Projects back in the 70s and 80s. And I wasn't surrounded by books. Interestingly enough, it was in the ninth grade. I went to Bruckner, um, I went to Junior High School 101 on Brooklyn Boulevard. And my English uh, teacher at the time, Mr. Delos Reyes, he assigned a book report that we had to do. For some reason, I didn't do it out of laziness and um, half the class failed it. Some out of laziness like me and some who just did it lousily. So Mr. Dallas Reyes basically chastised us, told us that the principal was angry with him and that he was giving us a second opportunity to do it because she's, she basically said, you know, it's a reflection on your work. So you have to like see what these students can do. So I took the opportunity and uh, he gave us for the second time this list that he gave us in the beginning of the semester um, of books to select from. I went to the library with my friends and there was a book called Flowers for Algernon by Danielle Keyes. It really intrigued me. And I found the book with the help of librarians because I really didn't really, uh, you know, was serious about taking books out of the library because I wasn't kind of shaped in that way. And so uh, I took it home and I was so in, enraptured by that novel that that was the book that literally made me want to be a writer. So my first love was fiction. And it wasn't until like three years later after I went through Mr. Delos Reyes's book list that I discovered that I was a natural poet. I started writing poems. Um, and, and poetry just came to you, the meter, the organization of the poem, or you it studied it? It came to me and, won a, and I won a contest. I entered into a contest in the uh, 12th grade, I believe, or the 11th grade. And I learned how to submit my manuscript through reading Poets and Writers and Writers Digest magazine. And when I was working at the school store, I was at Norman Thomas High School in Manhattan. And one of my teachers from the 11th grade, Ms. Donlan, she was from Ireland, like she had a very beautiful uh, Irish accent. She walks into the store and she announced that I won uh, the poetry award and she said move over Emily Dickinson it's Tony's time it was because one of the poems that won was that was fashioned over off of a Emily Dickinson poem so somewhere or another I wasn't really into poetry but after that I began to read poetry and write more what does poetry mean to you what is the magic of poetry Poetry is everything to me. I mean, I love fiction. Fiction was my first love, but 
poetry just comes naturally. Poetry has all the magic that you can imagine. It transports you. It has all these interesting juxtapositions. It compresses language and it's very visual and um, cinematic at times and lyrical. Um, it captures moods, it tells stories. It, it does so much more so than just run-of-the-mill prose or fiction or whatever, but I do love fiction. Now you teach creative writing at Howard University and you've taught at quite a number of universities. I read up on your biography a little bit. And uh, what you tell the students about poetry, how do you get them interested in poetry? Is there a latent hunger for poetry? I think myself that we see it, you know, breaking out in rap music, et cetera, where you wouldn't expect it, but it's nonetheless poetry or it's a, a form of poetry. Well, you know, Llewellyn, it's how university, we, a couple of years back, I was instrumental in creating um, a concentration in, in creative writing. And just recently, we had a departmental meeting in the English department, and they said that more students are migrating to the concentration in creative writing than anything else. So I think poetry is very popular. When I first got here 18 years ago, um, not only did I um, deal with my students, but I became a poet that kind of like workshop and taught poets from the community that migrated to my class that heard that I was coming here. So it's very popular. It's um, people who love poetry. It's not just because of rap music, it's just because it, it allows them to express themselves, to um, be creative, especially English students that have to write a lot of critical essays and stuff like that. And or even science students or architecture students, whoever, they need an outlet for their own personal uh, feelings and ideas. Now of your 21 books, how many of them are poetry books and how many of them are uh, uh, non-poetry? I think about, in terms of just sheer poetry, I think about 10 or 11 maybe poetry books. Even my children's books are in verse, so that takes care of that. And then I have anthologies that consist of a lot of poetry that I've edited. Now you, you spread yourself very widely, if I can say that in that you write for children and you write quite gritty poetry for adults. It yes. doesn't hold, no, bar, no holes are barred in some of your adult poetry. I mean, it goes back to your childhood, a lot of anger, a lot of very brutal observation. Uh, how do you, how do you uh, meld these two together? The work you do for children and the work you do for adults and your own feelings towards the world? Well, you know, I really didn't have to make that much of an adjustment. One of my heroes is Langston Hughes. And when you look at Langston Hughes's work, and Langston Hughes spent a, a number of years here in Washington, DC, um, what he managed to do was write for all ages, particularly for children, because back in those days, um, black children were not only denied um, images and role models, but they were bombarded with very negative, hateful imagery um, that was harmful. So it, 
it was people like, you know, W.E. Du Bois and um, Jesse Fawcett, Redmond, who started putting out brownies, this magazine towards, you know, um, black children. And Langston himself started publishing primarily, you know, in those journals for children. So he went on to do that. So when I became really attracted to um, the beauty and the magic of children's book, uh, that's what I wanted to do. It's just, it's just um, the difference is that you just have to adjust your language, you know, and uh, not so much the complexity of the issues, but you just think like how a child would think. Much of our education, it seems to me, if poetry comes into it anymore at all, is directed towards basically poets of the 19th century, English and American poets of the 19th century, not the 20th century. Langston Hughes was very much a 20th century man. Yes. Uh, when did you find Hughes? When did he become a force in your thinking and in your development? I love that question because I was a high schooler at Norman Thomas High School, and I worked part-time as a messenger, and I had a lot of free time. And I found myself um, sometimes in bookstores, whenever I got depressed or whatever, I, or felt lonely or whatever, I, I, or meditative, I just felt, you know, find myself in bookstores. So I was in a, a bookstore in, literally in, um, not Gant, uh, Grand Central Station bookstore. There was a bookstore that was in and outside of the subway. It was both exits. You could enter into the, from the subway and exit out. It was on Park Avenue. And um, I was browsing through the poetry section because I was always looking for in, you know, inspiration. And I came upon the selected poems of Langston Hughes. And on the shelf, I pull it off and it's a copy of Langston on the cover. And he's on his manual typewriter in his, his, Harlem, uh, his Harlem house. And he looks over his shoulder. And the image of Langston Hughes reminded me of some my own family, my father, my uncles, whoever. And just opening it up and reading about the characters from Harlem and the streets and stuff reminded me of my own background. And that's how I got captivated primarily by Langston Hughes. Do you think that everybody who's attracted to literature has that magic author that introduces them? You told us yours, mine, not terribly important, but I had one. Uh, after which things are different. After which you read. Uh, yes. Mine was Oscar Wilde, by the way. Uh, not a normal uh, segue into literature, but there you are. Uh, after which I was just fascinated by all literature, particularly English theatrical literature, but gradually it broadened out and happenstantially I found the Russian authors uh, the great Russian novels, which I can't read nowadays because I can't sort the names out anymore. But when I was a teenager, I could sort the names out and keep track of who was doing what to whom in, in War and Peace and uh, Crime and Punishment, etc. Um, how important, you, when you talk to people, when you're teaching literature, you do a lot to encourage literacy. And I see that you, you, you're part of several organizations that are literacy-driven or seek to spread literacy. Uh, how do you explain this magic moment when we find literature or it finds us? 
after which things are never quite the same again, mercifully. Well, you know, that's kind of one of the things I used to do uh, on the road. I would tell audiences, you know, settings where people would gather, even librarians or writers or whatever, teachers, and I would ask them, what was the, what was the book that made you fall in love with reading? And I remember reading uh, Amiri Barakar's, uh, Leroy Jones's um, autobiography, and he talked about just going, walking through the streets of the village in New York City and coming upon a James Baldwin uh, book with his face on the cover. And just by virtue of seeing a black face on the cover of a book, he got electrified. And also one time when he was, he just started opening up a James Joyce book, um, his Ulysses book, and just the language that really captivated him. But with myself, you know, I started, I fell in love with, you know, uh, Danielle um, Keyes's uh, Flowers for Algernon, but I found myself really gravitating towards Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Philip Roth, Updike, you know, all these people. And then that, uh, that subsequently led to other people. But it's just, you know, you, it's, it's like your own discovery. Like I have my students do a project where they create their own mock anthology. It's only a 30 page thing because they're undergraduates, but they have to go and find sources. And in that way, I get them to explore their own tastes in poetry and stuff like that. But um, every writer, every poet, um, every intellectual has that one book that has changed their lives. Of course, as you get older and you grow, you have different favorites. I mean, not, right now I can't even name, you know, my favorites is just the list is large. But if you become an avid reader, very hungry for reading, and like the pandemic is a, is a time for a lot of reading, you know. Um, I wonder whether, I must say that something that has helped my reading, just been able to do more of it, is the portability of a, a Kindle uh, that I can carry it with me anywhere. So in five minutes, two minutes, in fact, I was reading a novel just before we came on air. I'd already sat down and got myself all ready to go on air. So there were two or three minutes to read. Well, when you had to, you know, hump a book around with you, you were less likely to do it. So I think I used to buy books based on whether they would fit in my pocket, which was a very peculiar way. Yeah, to yeah. I mean, I used to wear because um, I was in military, <laughs> and I used to wear like the jackets from the military and the pants because the cargo pockets you could put you could fit a paperback in there. And you know, when I started reading in high school or junior high school, and I would travel to school in high school to Manhattan from the Bronx to Manhattan, you know, on the subways. And the buses, you know, reading, you know, I got so much reading done in New York, you know. That's great. Uh, commuting by public transport is a great asset because you can read. You can't read if you're driving a car. And books on tape are interesting. They're different. Uh, but it feeds you language, which is good. It's, it's good that you get fed constant language. If the reader is a good reader, and of course, if the book is good. Uh, talking about books and poetry, let's hear one of your poems, please. Okay, um, so this is a piece, basically it's the poem that ends my collection, my new collection is gonna come out this month. Um, it's Death Was the Cage of Smiling is the collection. And this piece I wrote in May in the, in the grips of the double pandemic of 
Rona and Racism. Let's just say, because it's such a, an evocative title, let's say it again. This is the collection. This is the anthology. Death with Occasional Smiling. Death with Occasional Smiling. And this poem is called In Venice Dolphins Swim the Canals. And the title is the first line, basically. In Venice, dolphins swim the canals as LA skies are crystal ball clear, predicting the coming of the cicadas and DC's cherry blossoms opening early like parasol debutante umbrellas. The streets are empty. Everyone is sheltered in as a virus rages like Ralph Ellison invisible to the naked eye while a naked ape an orange idiot Sansa Savant is babbling about it being a hoax, a hoax. It's all a hoax. Telling us from the White White House, don't believe your lying eyes as refrigerated trucks in Brooklyn stockpile bodies in freezers like popsicles. This agent orange menace is a virus onto himself as racism is, as stupidity is, in a country where Confederate statues are more visible than common sense, a virus named after a cheap piss water beer, this menace barks China, 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 as if repulsed by his wife's vagina. At a press conference, he bogarts the mic from the experts who know more about science than he knows about stealing, telling us hydroxychloroquine malaria pills are good as Tic Tacs at fighting bad breath, he should know. And if that doesn't work, you could spray down your tongue with Lysol or belt back some Clorox to crank your box. In Venice, dolphins swim the canals free of debris, while here, black joggers are hunted by fathers and sons in the rite of passage Jim Crow outdoor trailer trash parlor game as Amy or Karen or Becky with the bad brain scream hysterically into cell phones at 911 operators in their worst Stanislavski method acting like the black birder is a mockingbird. While an essential worker EMT cannot get any PPE, instead she got eight bullets into her bone tired sleeping body in a 21 gun salute to T.S. Eliot with a side of side eye because May is the cruelest month, especially during a lockdown where racism and hate are never quarantined, yet a black man remains a stepping stool for a white man's knee who drummed out Colin Kaepernick as if a flag takes precedence over a black life. That is extraordinary and it's extraordinary encompassing so much of contemporary news. It's also, I like the way you read it. Uh, my wife and I often at night, we use the computer to see how different well-known actors read poetry, whether it's Burton or, or Laurence Olivier, right. or, uh, and it's all done differently. I like yours, I think Swin voice, oh my, I mean, I, you know, Burton is incredible. <laughs> they used to, uh, I, I was one of the first people to write in a newspaper that, one could listen to Richard Burton reading a telephone book. And later on, he did. He did uh, <laughs> as, a, as a sort of party trick. It was recorded. Uh, but Swinburne, the, uh, the poet, used to 
shout his poetry at waves. He would stand on the beach and shout with a, a very aggressive delivery. Yeah. Uh, Burton's approach to poetry is much more controlled, much more controlled. Dylan Thomas was interesting and um, Ezra Pound listening to their uh, tapes back when I was coming up, I was listening to them. It was incredible to hear them and T.S. Eliot. Absolutely extraordinary that we can hear these people. Did you ever meet Langston Hughes? Anybody else has had a big impact on your life? I mean, obviously it's been an interesting life. You grew up in the project, somewhere you got an education, you served in the military. What did you in do the in the military? Yeah. When, did you, when were you in the military and what, what was your... I was in the military from 1984 to 1987. I, I joined the military to make money to go to college. I didn't want to put the burden on my aunt and my grandmother. They were the ones who were raising me in the Bronx. Um, so I did that on the GI Bill, you know, and I was able to kind of like, when I got out, I was able to go to college and live off of that um, college money uh, in the Bronx and also in Harlem. Where did you go to college initially? I'm a product of the CUNY and the SUNY system. I went to Baruch College, where I studied with Dr. Addison Gale Jr., who was a, a chief proponent of the Black aesthetic movement. I didn't know at the time. I learned, of course, during the class. And uh, Dr. Sandra Towns, who was also a colleague and instrumental in talking to some of the Black arts movement poets like Hakeem Adabudi and saying, you got to publish Tony Medina's work. Yeah. And then I went to graduate school at SUNY Binghamton. I got my master's and my PhD there. So, Some, you know, snow you is snow is well known to you. Some of your poetry suggests that you're very angry at your father. Is that correct? No, I'm not angry at my father. Um, I really don't harbor any anger towards my family. It's more like anger at society, but there's always humor in there somewhere, you know. Are you married? Do you have a family of your own? I was married when I was younger. Um, at the moment, I don't have a family. And uh, what are your ambitions now? 21 books is no mean achievement. What are your ambitions? Where do you, what do you want for Tony and for his work? Well, you know, my ambition has always been to try to be like Langston Hughes. Um, Langston Hughes was like the first black writer to ever literally be a full-time writer you know um i don't know how he did it but he was incredible uh a lot of times he had to just pack up his vehicle from harlem and drive all the way into the deep south by himself pack up you know the trunk with all his books and to sell it like that i don't know how he managed to do that but um you know he literally lived by his art in the Jim Crow era, which was really difficult. So maybe, you know, I'll be able to keep producing and retire and be able to be a full-time. There, there have been a lot of great African-American writers. Frederick uh, Douglass was a great writer of prose. Of prose, he used poetry. Incidentally, he was primarily expressed himself and exquisitely in prose. Uh, who would you say were the very first uh, conspicuously successful black poets, not necessarily commercially successful, but successful in terms of the poetry itself. Well, I mean, um, on the books, you see Phyllis Wheatley, 
was the first to get published, but she got a lot of flack and they even had a trial against her to, to say, there's no way uh, that a, 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 a black woman that, that comes out of slavery has a soul and is able to be intelligent enough to produce poetry. Um, uh, you know, Louis Gates, you know, Louis, you know, Henry Louis Gates has a book that talks about the trials of Phyllis Wheatley. But moving forward, Langston Hughes was probably the most uh, popular, the most famous, and the most successful uh, in the modern time. The, the, the Howard poets of Howard University, the distinguished African American University, um, where you teach, uh, how much was their impact? And is it ongoing? Is there a sense of what they achieved? at the university nowadays? Llewellyn, the impact is immense. Um, you're talking about the Harlem Renaissance or also called the New Negro Movement emanated out of Howard University for the most part, not just Harlem, but Howard University. So you had people like Mae Miller who was, you know, lived on the campus, basically her house was on the campus um, and um, her house became a salon for black poets. And not only Black poets, but W.E.B. Du Bois, um, Booker T. Then you have Sterling Brown, who literally was born on Howard's campus in a house on the campus. And he taught there for many years. His students were A.B. Spellman, Leroy Jones, who became a Mary Baraka. Lucille Clifton also comes out of Howard University. Um, and then you have E. Ethelbert Miller, who, who was a student there in the 70s, and he emerges. And you know, from there, you had visiting poets like Haki Madabudi, Donnell Lee, Sonia Sanchez, myself. And then you have the, the newer generation, Yona Harvey, A. Van Jordan, and so many others. In closing, what are your thoughts on Amanda Gorman? Is she one of your stars? I like her. I like, you know, she's very inspirational. She's such a beautiful spirit. Um, she is into tradition. She tries to embrace the whole country. Her poems are really interesting because there's layers in there. And I like the way she does her internal rhymes. And um, yeah, I, I think she's great. I think she's fantastic for not only poetry, but for the country in terms of getting uh, people who normally would not uh, be interested in poetry, getting their attention. Would you like to share with us what you are reading now. Now, I'm actually, I'm rereading um, Bernard Malamud's uh, short story collection, The Magic Barrel, which, you know, he's really incredible. Oh, I think he is quite an incredible writer. Yeah, I love his Well, we thank you for coming on. We thank you for your poetry. And we thank you for the pleasure of your company, which is extraordinary. Cheers. Thank you, Llewellyn. That's our show for today. We're so glad to have been able to bring you Tony Medina, read his books, enjoy his poetry. And by the way, he wrote about the pandemic. Do keep your, your mask on. You can take your tie off. I always do after the show. But put this on. Cheers. See you next time. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Spotify,
Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.